despite all the focus of, on the technology and cloud and zero trust and you know, you name it, right? AI, all the technology, at the end of the day, this is people, rapport, relationships, trust, empathy, building that communication among people has where I found success. Uh, maybe speaking their language, understanding like everyone has their own incentives of what the, what's driving them, why they're doing what they're doing. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. What's up, everybody? Your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Uh, really excited today to have Chris Hughes and me. I, uh, I've been chasing Chris for a while to get him on here. I think uh, just to butter him up a little bit, Chris is one of those folks I think I admire most in the industry because he's got an ability to cut across not just policy, not just tech, not just the human element, but to sort of coalesce that all together. And a shameless plug, if you are not following him on LinkedIn, some of his breakdowns of emerging policy and the implications absolutely make really complicated shit and sometimes pretty boring shit really consumable and accessible to folks that might not have the technical or security background. So Chris, with that unbelievable introduction, thanks for joining us, brother. Yeah, I'm excited to be here, man. Excited to chat. I've been following the show and really enjoying the conversations you've all been having. Awesome. Thank you. Well, so we usually start. Right, like I've had the opportunity to get to know you, huge fan of your work for maybe like the 1% of listeners who doesn't know who you are. Give them the, who are you? What's your story? What are you working on? What are you passionate about? Sort of all that. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm a president and co-founder of an organization called Acquia. It's a cybersecurity service-disabled veteran-owned small business focused on cybersecurity, especially in the public sector. It's a services-based company. Uh, but outside of that, you know, I've been in the cyber community, especially in the public sector, just shy of 20 years. I was active duty Air Force. I've been a federal civilian a couple of times, once with the Navy doing cloud security, DevSecOps, you name it. And then also with the Defense Health Agency, as well as working with the GSA on the FedRAMP team. I also reviewing all the cloud services coming to the federal government for better or worse, you know, knowing FedRAMP very well. And then just, you know, really involved in the community. I'm really passionate about getting technology into the war, warfighter's hands, you know, making an impact on national security with technology. And you can find me on LinkedIn talking about these things. You know, I have a podcast of my own called Resilient Cyber. And I'm excited to be here and chat. Awesome, brother. So there's like a hundred different places we can go here. I want to start sort of on your take, given that background of sort of being in the service, sort of being in GSA and working sort of around FedRAMP, and really sitting at that intersection of technology and security and policy, what's your sort of take on the, the where we are and what the next 24 months could, would, maybe looks like from a, a pub sec sort of policy standpoint? And I'll preface that with, I think all of us have sort of shared the lamentations of, like, you'll see a policy thing shoot out well-intentioned from like a CIO or a CTO here. None of the local agencies or departments are tracking it. It's not connection. Industry has no idea what to do. And sort of it's that Spider-Man meme where everybody's pointing at each other. So as you're sort of given that answer on, on the current state of policy, I'd be curious as you look forward sort of in that next 24 months to knowing we're going to have an election and sort of an administrative change, some, some, some sort of change will occur. What does that kind of look like for you? 
Yeah, I mean, we actually have quite a bit of policy activities going on in the government around cybersecurity. You, you know, things every a lot of things kind of spawn from cybersecurity executive order. We have a lot of focus on cloud, obviously, cloud security, a lot of focus on software supply chain security, a lot of focus on zero trust. You know, so there's well-intended policies like you talked about, you know, but I think the devil's in the details of how they play out and how implementation goes. I talked about FedRAMP, for example. Everyone kind of bemoans FedRAMP and the ATO process and things like that. And the reason is, you know, FedRAMP's been around a decade. We have tens of thousands of cloud services in the marketplace, and we have 300 that are FedRAMP authorized, for example, after a decade, right? We went from cloud first to cloud smart. And it's almost like, you know, when are we going to get to that next level? That said, we did see the FedRAMP modernization uh, memo come out that talks about some key things around automation, you know, compliance as code, uh, a lot of innovative maybe pathways to authorizations. But ultimately, I think, you know, this is one of my big things that really get to me is I feel like sometimes policies well intended. It's often written by people who are disconnected from the groundwork as well as people who have domain-specific knowledge to make it functional. Uh, and that, that can cause problems. Uh, and also, I think that we have kind of a risk-averse culture where we think of, you know, insecurity, like we need to stand still, we need to keep things safe, keep things secure. But the world doesn't work like that. Things are continuing to move on. Adversaries are continuing to get innovative and find new ways to exploit systems and software and data. So I think that policy needs to keep pace better with the state of technology. And we need to think about the trade-offs, right? You know, there's risks of security incident, but there's also risk with stagnation, you know, both from an economic prosperity perspective and a national security perspective as well. Uh, so it's going to be interesting times. Like you talked about, we have an election cycle coming up where I see a lot of innovative uses of AI around misinformation, disinformation kind of further drive us apart as a society you know there's a lot of a lot of things to be seen here yeah it's interesting to hear you sort of talk about one the the sort of gap between policy sort of creation or inception and application right like the actual sort of edges are there and then that sort of juxtaposed with risk aversion and this perspective that inactivity like if we are, and I'm like heavily air quoting, secure today, because I would challenge that. If we just stay wherever we are, we'll be secure. How have you seen success or how would you recommend folks sort of driving in that space where you're trying to connect a dot between someone who's maybe had a policy sent to them, who is looking back saying, well, this is a little disconnected from like the technical reality on the ground. And then you've got someone on the other side, maybe it's a procurement team, maybe it's a security team, maybe it's a compliance team who's like, no, we can't do anything except this one thing because this one thing keeps us secure. There's a, there's a huge human element and sort of like change management culture under that. How do you start to break that elephant down and really look at like driving an organization forward? Yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on when you said the human element piece, like despite all the focus of, on the technology and cloud and zero trust and, you know, you name it, right? AI, all the technology, at the end of the day, this is people, rapport, relationships, trust, empathy, you know, building that communication among people has where I found success, you know, uh, maybe speaking their language, understanding like, you know, everyone has their own incentives of what the, what's driving them, why they're doing what they're doing. So trying to, you know, build that rapport with them. And this is something like, you know, folks like Nick Sinai and, and you know, other folks from Hack Your Bureauc Bureaucracy talk about is just understand like what's driving them? Why are they doing what they're doing? And then trying to help them understand what, what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish and, and align those incentives to ensure that the organization has the outcomes that it's after is where I found a lot of success. You know, if you come in and you only tell someone, hey, it has to be this way because the policy says, or, you know, because I have to do X, Y, and Z, you're not going to get real far. It's going to fall on deaf ears. It's going to build a silo and they're going to not in engage with you. And security often does that. We come around, we beat people over the head with, you know, what 
uh, RMF says or NIST says or whatever, right, uh, says that they have to be doing. Uh, but we're not really sitting there understanding, like, what are they trying to accomplish? How can we help facilitate that? And how can we drive towards, you know, secure mission outcomes at the speed that it matters for the mission uh, versus just being them over the head with policy, I think is, you know, so like it comes out, like I said, the human element, like you talk about trust, empathy, building relationships, building rapport, being an ally rather than an adversary, because the adversary is not each other. The adversaries are other nations. So will you take that, I'm going to pull on that empathy thread, because I think where, where historically we've seen a lot of, you know, either friction or just huge segmentation is in that CISO kind of vertical where, right. I, in theory by title have somebody who should be like, not only using technical and policy and security and all that together as a, as a lever, like an enabler, but someone who's also bringing the community together, whether that's the operational side, the tech side, the compliance side. And more often than not, you either find a CISO that is literally just going to be the scapegoat. And, you know, they're two levels down from a CTO or a CIO and they get brought up on stage when like solar winds happen and they go to jail and then they get sent back down to the basement. Or on the other side, you find zero empathy between your sort of security team and your, whatever your mission, your operational team is. Is there an example where you've seen that done well, bringing that empathy together? And if not, what could that look like? How should folks on both sides of that table, right? That CISO, that security, that leadership side, and that operational leadership side, how do we start to get them to have that shared awareness that, hey, not only can security be strategic, having a clear sort of focus on a single pane of glass allows you to take risks and actually go take advantage of opportunity, which I think then comes back to your sort of stagnation point in the beginning, right? Like how should, how should organizations be getting after that? Yeah, you raised a couple of good points. It's like the CISO is often kind of seen as the fall guy, right? Something goes wrong, we go and blame the CISO, they get thrown under a bus. Uh, but the unfortunate and uncomfortable reality that security needs to uh, kind of accept is that we often, we don't own the risk. We can't, you know, you typically can't make the business or the mission do something. You can help inform their decisions, help them make risk-informed decisions on like what could happen if they go this route. And, you know, you can try to make them uh, understand the implications of a certain decision, but we don't own the risk most of the time. It's, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do with or without us for better or worse. Uh, so trying to build that relationship and help them understand like, hey, you can do this. You know, we can't stop you, but here's the implications of if you do it. Here's how you can make a risk-informed decision. Is, is it a way to go about that? And you talked about the, uh, you know, the outcomes, uh, bridging the gap between, you know, policy and, and operations and things like that. It's just those alignment incentives, you know, just like we talk about kind of penalizing development engineering teams for producing insecure systems or products. We also need to maybe take a look at penalizing the security uh, team if they're just dragging things to a screeching halt and, you know, for the sake of safety or security and like actually, you know, draw, you know, dragging back the mission outcome. You know, we're all here for a reason and it's not security. I hate to say it, but like we're not in the business of security. We're not a security vendor. We're here to whatever the warfighters mission, the, the mission owner, the federal civilian agency, you know, we're talking about centers for Medicare and Medicare. Okay, VA, you name it, right? They all have a mission and it's not cybersecurity. Uh, cybersecurity is here to help them facilitate that mission and do it so securely. Uh, but we need to see things through the broader lens of the organization and what they're trying to achieve versus just only our kind of myopic, narrow view that we've looked at. It's interesting to, one, especially from you, I think it's interesting to hear that like, hey, we're not here just about security. I think a lot of folks don't recognize, and this is one of those things I'll hark back to, to Enrique Odi, my CTO, who have just always learned from. He's got this 
this perspective, which I think is, is closely aligned to what you're getting at, which is, hey, like that sort of the CISA, the security team, they balance risk. They're helping to create trade space so that we can enable a mission outcome. It's not this pursuit of like, hey, this is a perfect risk matrix or like we're perfectly secure, right? One, that's a, it's a false premise. And then two, I think that goes back and I'm going to date myself here. I'm like, when I was a lieutenant walking around Afghanistan and we were clearing roads and colonels would yell at us that like we wouldn't leave a road green on a map. And our perspective was like, hey, as soon as our eyes are no longer on this, it's not secure anymore. It's like, we'll call it yellow, but we're never going to have perfect security unless I have someone or something sitting along every step of the value chain, just wildly cost prohibitive. It's wildly resource inefficient. And then we effectively are pricing ourselves out of whatever geopolitical conflict we're going to be in, whether it's a near peer, whether it's some asymmetric threat. So how do you, you know, as and I guess, what would your, this is a good question, I think, what would your message be, right? Like we in theory are going to have like a new secretary of defense, new CSA, all of that. How should they be thinking about that like really strategic role of security and opportunity and sort of risk? And changing, like, how should we be reframing that conversation at a national, at a strategic level? So I've just completely thrown you a curveball and been like, all right, Chris, you're POTUS. You're, you're bringing people in. What's it look like? Yeah, you actually said a few things that, that stood out to me is like, you know, you talked about in the earlier uh, part of the conversation, like staying still and feeling safe, like in a walled garden kind of context. Uh, but as we talked about, the world's continuing to move, including our adversaries in the digital realm. They're using, you know, increasingly using cyber as a, a method of warfare, for example. Uh, so while we think we're safe and secure, you know, the world is continuing to move. We need to be out there engaging with our peers in the organization. So not just siloing ourselves off in cyber, we need to be embedded with the engineering team, the development team, working hand in hand with them towards those shared outcomes. And another thing that you talked about is like, you know, you may check a road, right? And it's it's safe when you look, but when you walk away, you have no idea what's happening there. I'm, I'm a uh, parent of four. I have four kids. Uh, I might look in their room and it's clean when I looked. But 10 minutes later, it's no indicator of whether or not it's still clean. And that's kind of how we do cybersecurity, quote unquote. Perfect example. It's like cybersecurity, you know, we do our ATO, everything looks great. All your documents are in a row, you know, it looks great, right? And then we come back in a year and 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 reassess things. Like the threat is dynamic. It's constantly changing. We need to be, you know, always facilitating that activity of continuous readiness from a cyber perspective uh, is another key aspect of that. And then you talked about, you know, the, the the legacy kind of approach of cybersecurity of that, you know, shutting everything down, keeping everything safe, keeping everything secure. It's the same thing going back to parenting again. Like I need to let my kids, if I want to build competent, proficient, capable children, I need to let them go out and take some level of risk. That's how they build competency and build proficiency in things. Same thing with engineering and development teams. They need to go out there and be able to take risk and, and have guardrails in place and safeguards, of course. Uh, but you don't become proficient and capable by just standing still and staying stagnant. You know, you need you build that proficiency by going out, like using technology is a good example. You starting to use AI, starting to play with some of these new technologies, starting to explore new methodologies and ways of working. That's how you build competencies and proficiencies that we're after that can be more secure. Like, you know, for example, in the realm of DevSecOps and things like that, they show that teams that actually deliver software iteratively and more faster on a regular basis, they actually have better security outcomes than the teams that do the legacy, you know, kind of wait, keep everything safe, keep everything perfect, have it all written down exactly how we want it. Uh, and then when something breaks, uh, you don't know what the hell is going on because not, you know, you have no, you, you have no proficiency. You haven't exercised. It's like a muscle. You have to, yes. you have to, you have to exercise it or it's going to atrophy. 
Yeah. I think, I think thinking about the sort of exercising of the muscle is a, is a really good proxy here. And then so two questions, last two, one is, you know, as we sort of talked through policy, pub sex, sort of the balance culturally, if you have like one or two things for, for listeners as they're thinking about like, Hey, what should I be paying attention to? What's maybe an emerging concept or like a new policy sort of line or, you know, a piece of technology or an attack vector, what's something, one or two things you'd say, Hey, like, these are the things I'm going to be paying attention to. You should keep an eye on, you know, going forward for the next, you know, months or year. Yeah. So I'm going to be a little biased because I have a, a book that came out earlier this year focused on software supply chain security. So I think that that's a big one that we need to be paying attention to, whether we're talking big proprietary software vendors, the Microsofts, the Octas, you know, these are high value targets with dense amounts of data and resources that, that malicious actors are after, as well as like open source software is widely used, it's pervasive, it's everywhere. You know, it's more efficient for an attacker to target these things than target one single target, for example. Uh, so they're, you know, highly rich targets. And then also another thing is uh, vulnerability management is a space that people need to be paying attention to. Uh, we just crossed 30,000, you know, known vulnerabilities this year. Organizations simply can't keep up. We need to modernize how we do vulnerability management. We need to have prioritization and context. Uh, is it actually exploited? Is it known to be exploited? Is it likely to be exploited? Is it reachable? You know, I'm getting technical a little bit, but like, you know, we can't just throw a, a spreadsheet of 7,000 findings at developers and tell them. Every vulnerability is not a yeah. vulnerability. Not, yeah, they're all not created equal, man. Exactly. We have limited resources. We have workforce challenges and constraints. We need to think about, you know, how can we help the business make risk-informed, prioritized decisions around vulnerabilities and move at the speed they need to first just chasing everything. Because if everything is a risk, you know, you're getting nowhere, you're going nowhere. Uh, and then the other factor I, I would throw out there, if I could give a message, is like having empathy for the other side. From the development engineering side, thinking about some of these emerging threats, thinking about some of these policies that are coming out that cybersecurity needs to be concerned with. You know, why are they coming to you with this? Where is this coming from? What's driving this? And then from the security side, you know, from the missions perspective and the operations perspective, what is their objective? What are they trying to achieve? You know, put ourselves in their shoes and help understand like what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that can get us to those short shared outcomes, shared incentives and outcomes that we're trying to get after. The shared outcome is such an undervalued thing as we get into security because there's just been... Got it. I mean, it's been years, I think decade plus for both of us sort of sitting around and trying to work with organizations on, hey, security can't just be this thing that like sits at the end of the hall or like sits in the basement. And like when a red light goes on, you're like, all right, security team, do your freaking thing. But like, if they're not part of the process all the way through and like your security leadership is not sitting in the room as you're building sort of mission plans, as you're thinking about strategy, as you're building scale for the organization. Think about that. If you have somebody that's completely disconnected or a piece that's completely disconnected and you build a system and that system breaks, you're asking security to be this like omnipotent sort of all peering duct tape that can just solve anything that doesn't exist, right? Like it's impossible. Yeah, they have no context. Like, why did you build it this yeah. way? What What is this system intended for you? And why did you make these different architectural technical decisions along the way? If I'm not along with you on that journey, yep. I can't just show up and know how to help you resolve things or remediate a situation. 100%. So with that sort of in mind, you know, coming to the last question here, right, we've got, we've talked a ton of different things. We've talked kind of where we are in the world, right? A wildly fluid sort of geopolitical landscape. You know, I think I, I made the joke to somebody last week, you know, Indo-Paycom got so cool and then SecCom's back on the map, like back on the menu, boys. And, uh, and sort of what that means in terms of like broader trade space and you throw that with an election year with 
think uh, some trepidation around both public and private markets and sort of the relative cost of capital and what that looks like. So I frame it that way to show it's seemingly wildly uh, an increasing degree of instability. So, you know, Chris, you're, we made the joke about POTUS before. You're sort of king for a day. You're waving your wand. You're able to change something and it sticks, right? Like you don't have to caveat it. What are you focusing on? What's the one thing you go, you go swap around and why? Yeah, honestly, it's going to be to my own cybersecurity community and peers. It's like, you know, changing our culture of not only thinking about risk in a negative context in the sense of our systems, our, you know, security incidents, data breaches, et cetera, right? Those are all things that we need to be concerned with. But we also need to think about the risk of staying stagnant, falling behind, you know, near peer adversaries in other nations, you know, stifling the organization so much they don't get the outcomes that they're after that impacts the citizen, the warfighter, the taxpayer. So we need to have that kind of uh, perspective of not just only thinking about the risk of, of keeping everything safe and secure, but the risk of doing nothing or the risk of being too slow or the risk of essentially falling behind as a nation, uh, both from an economic prosperity perspective and a national security perspective. I guess uh, it's also an uplifting way for us to think about bringing the community together and creating that sort of shared vision. So brother man, thank you as always for, uh, for dropping a whole bunch of knowledge. We will get a link to the book in the show notes to make sure we're, uh, we're driving a little bit, creating an opportunity for a kickback here to the podcast. We can get some new cameras, but no, all joking aside, thank you so much. I learn every single time I'm either reading what you're writing or listening to you speak. So very grateful for you to spend some time with us, brother. Yeah, absolutely. It was an honor to come on the show and I really enjoyed the conversations, both from a technical perspective, you know, venture capital, markets, national security. Keep it up. It's awesome stuff. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Have a great day. All right. What's up, everyone? This is Saved Rounds. Join me and my favorite technologist and second front compatriot, Enrique Odi, as we cut through the cacophony of the news cycle and reload your arsenal to annihilate boring defense tech takes. Let the fun begin. All right, buddy. We got a good one today. I'm going to talk a little bit about the FedRAMP draft guidance that's out there. I think it's generated a lot of conversation. I think between the FedRAMP and CMMC and the software, what's the SDF self-attestation, like all of that has, has created quite a buzz around this and I think a bunch of confusion. Maybe confusion, maybe optimism. What's your sort of take on on the draft guidance, on some of the conversations that have floated around? What are you seeing? What are you optimistic about? Yeah, a couple of things I'm optimistic about. The first one is the fact that there's now an advisory board for FedRAMP. Like, that's great. I think having the FedRAMP team get some outside input, and again, they've all sought outside input, but now it's a more formalized process of inside the government, outside the government, big companies, small companies. I think that's going to help drive FedRAMP in the right direction. The other positive change I saw is that you now have another path in theory, if this keeps going through, to accreditation where it's not just a service, it's not just the jab, but actually the FedRAMP PMO themselves can actually push for an accreditation for technology that they think are useful that doesn't yet have a sponsor. That is an incredible uh, way to empower that organization to bring in new tech. Now here comes the bad. Is the FedRAMP team going to grow to actually do all this work? Are they going to get a budget to actually do all this work? Because right now, the, the FedRAMP program office, I do not think is big enough to tackle what how much needs to be tackled. But I think what's leading that is the overall assessment of how much software is in the DoD. 
Look at some of this draft guidance. You're talking about, oh, the DoD has like, you know, 100, 200 systems. No, they don't. You know, I think that I think the Air Force alone probably has 100 human resources systems. Like you're talking about each service in the DoD has thousands, thousands of IT systems, most of them that are now becoming cloud-based. But the numbers of FedRAMP, it's, it, okay, I'll just throw all this, I'll be very blunt on this one. They looked at a really slow process around the numbers like, oh, look, only 280 companies have been accredited in the last 15 years, you know, plus or minus a few numbers. Oh, that must be, that's the demand signal. No, 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 that's not the demand signal. That was a throughput problem. The demand signal is massive, but they're making some decisions based off of really some, some poor underlying assumptions. So if they could solve those assumptions, the overall movement of FedRAMP, I think, is the right direction. What do you see as a limitation? You know, we talk about sort of throughput. Where could FedRAMP look in the future in terms of maybe expanding or changing its focus? Changing its focus chart. Let's just call it expansion or strategically. You know, if you were running FedRAMP, sort of, what are you looking at? What are you looking at sort of positioning in the next 24 to 36? Yeah, a couple of things. I think it, to increase the throughput, every, we have to get a lot more automation, whether that's OSCAL documentation, whether that's VEX documentation, we need to automate more. And honestly, to a certain degree, if companies can't automate, maybe that should be a discriminator that they're not working with the federal government. Like, so we need to start setting some requirements of, of certain abilities to uh uh, to automate your outputs from your systems to meet all the compliance checks, the vulnerability checks, the continuous monitoring checks. Because right now, you know, go, you go through an audit, you have an auditor sitting there asking you to screenshot configuration menus. You know, you know, we shouldn't in a modern world be screenshotting config menus to prove that it's configured. Like there should be tooling for this. So I think that's the first thing. It's like, we got to automate more. And if companies can't automate, you know, that's a discriminator that they don't meet security standards. I think the other thing is like, we need to move more from compliance-based accreditation into more continuous vulnerability assessments. So what does this mean? Well, if you look at FedRAMP right now, FedRAMP has resulted in a gigantic ecosystem of assessors and consultants. But that's not what the country needs in long term. What the country needs two, three, five, ten years down the road is the country needs a bunch of cybersecurity technical professionals. So if we change FedRAMP to being more continuous pen testing focused, what we're going to see is a new ecosystem of thousands or ten thousands of pen testers. That is a an entirely different workforce for America, and it puts us at an entirely different uh, geopolitical standing for technology when we are a country based off of engineers versus compliance auditors. So that that would be like if I was FedRAMP and I want to change the nature of, of geopolitical strategy. That's where I'd drive. Love it. I love it. I think that's a. Uh... An interesting way to think about sort of the the intersection between sort of security, compliance, tech adoption, and broader sort of geopolitical strategy uh, that maybe is often lost as somebody's looking through a single lens. So good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.